Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. This is the third episode in a six-part miniseries called The Physics of Everything, in which we're presenting long-form conversations from a series of events at the Academy sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation. Today's discussion is about a fundamental difficulty in science. The fact that some of the things we'd like to understand are really complex, stubbornly and maybe even irreducibly complex. Now, this might sound silly. We're talking about the workings of the entire universe here. Of course they're complex. But science, especially in the last 200 years or so, has done a remarkably good job of reducing some extraordinarily complicated concepts into remarkably manageable equations. Einstein's legendary E equals MC squared, which explains the relationship between mass and energy in a grand total of three letters, one number, and an equal sign, is a particularly dramatic example. And for a long time, what's called reductionism has been the dominant philosophy among physicists. The idea that if we could only find the right data and look at it from the correct perspective, there's nothing happening in the universe that couldn't be reduced to a set of relatively simple equations. But is this true? Many physicists are now theorizing that there are some systems, and maybe a whole lot of systems, that are beyond our ability to understand in a reductionist way. Maybe our tools of observation aren't up to the challenge. Maybe because we're a part of the universe and not outside it, we could never achieve that right perspective. Or maybe some levels of complexity are beyond what our brains, even our best brains, are capable of grasping. So what's a scientist to do? It seems like a great topic for a handful of really smart people to have conversation about. So let's listen in while they do. This discussion was held at the Academy on May 9th, 2016. And for it, we invited first Dr. Bernard Chazelle, the Eugene Higgins Professor of Computer Science at Princeton University, where he's been on the faculty since 1986. His current research focuses on the algorithmic nature of complex living systems. Second was Dr. Marcelo Gleiser, a theoretical physicist at Dartmouth College, where he studies the emergence of complex structures in nature. Third, Dr. Michael Strevens, who teaches philosophy of science at New York University, uh, with topics including complexity, causation, and the social structure of science. And finally, Dr. Jeffrey West, distinguished professor and former president of the Santa Fe Institute. His primary interests have been in fundamental questions across a variety of fields, all motivated by the search for the simplicity underlying complexity. Our moderator is Dr. George Musser, contributing editor at Scientific American, an author of Spooky Action at a Distance and The Complete Idiot's Guide to String Theory. We'll let him kick things off. So tonight's topic is complexity, and that is a very peculiar word I've always thought. So on the one hand, it connotes intractability, inscrutability, that we're talking about systems that are composed of so many moving and meshing parts that you just can't keep track of it all. But the word also connotes simplicity in a way, because the proposition is that that incredibly complex system gives rise at a higher level to, 
to simple behavior, or at least higher order regularities. And one of the tensions that we'll explore tonight is how you can do that, how you can have both simplicity and complexity in the same system viewed in, in different ways. Another kind of almost oxymoronic quality of the word complex in this context is it means more than the sum of its parts. So you have emergent properties in these systems. And it means less than the sum of its parts because you have these regularities in the systems that don't take into account all their, all their details. How does that happen? So to square that circle, we've got four of the leading experts in the world on the question. And I won't bore you with all the awards that they've won, the academies of science that they sit on. They're just the A team on this question. And I'll introduce them as, as we go along. So Michael, let me, let me start with you. Michael Strebens is a philosophy professor here at NYU. And he's actually completing or has completed a popular level book uh, that deals with the question, is science irrational? Mm, cool. And that, I'm told the answer is yes. Uh, and it's good that it is irrational. That's what allows us to make, to make progress. But we won't talk about that now. You bring that up in, when you pummel him later. Um, I wanted to ask you about a very interesting line you had in one of your papers that you sent me. Mm -hmm. about rocks. And about, I put a <laughs> rock on the table here. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of sitting there. And you had said that the rock sitting in the field, in your example, was an incredibly complex system. And I'm wondering if you could kind of square that with the fact that the rock doesn't seem to be doing very much. Mm. Well, the rock is, an, an, uh, at one level, behaving incredibly simply. It's just sitting there and, and not moving. We can see that. Uh, but if you zoomed up a few million, million times, uh, you'll see the rock is made of uh, lots and lots of molecules. The molecules are made of atoms. The atoms are all, because that rock is not at absolute zero, the atoms are all moving around crazily. They're all vibrating, going every which way. Uh, if you could see that rock the way you can see the traffic in Manhattan, if you look out the window, with everything going which way, uh, reacting to everything else, uh, one big complex mess, you would see that that rock is uh, uh, a whole lot more complicated than in one way than what's going on out the window. And that is something that we will explore because it is it's kind of a strange fact of the, of the universe. So let's now turn to Jeffrey West, who's just flown in. In fact, you can feel sorry for him. He got up at 4.30 in the morning to make this event today, and we're, we're grateful that you could come in from Santa Fe. Jeffrey is at the Santa Fe Institute, and he's a physicist both by training, I think by disposition also, although you managed to study pretty much everything. I, I, I gave up trying to make a list of all the subjects that you've tackled. Um, human lifespan, sleep, cancer, brain development. But what Michael was just saying about traffic in cities was not completely irrelevant to your line of work, and I'm wondering if you could develop that comparison a little bit. Well, yes, I've, um, I have worked on many things, and one of the things I've worked on um, uh, quite intensely and uh, very enjoyably in the last um, few years is trying to um, develop uh, what, what, for a better word, is the science of cities. And uh, a city, I mean, you just got to look out the window. I mean, there's, uh, uh, this is kind of a quintessential complex system in the sense that you <coughs> described earlier. Um, you know, it's, um, it's much more and to some extent less than the sum of its parts. Um, and it has all kinds of interesting emergent properties. And I was actually sitting here thinking as we were waiting for this to begin, um, it's also fantastic in the sense that, um, you know, if you look at each individual building, it's much more like the rock in the sense that um, it sits there and um, 
It's, it itself is made of components. But, you know, it's, it's a very, it's, it's, it's rash, in the, just taking from apparently the title of your book, it's actually quite rational in the sense it was designed. Um, it follows, you know, the laws of physics in, the, in, in that design. Um, you know, we understand pretty much how a building works, the plumbing and the electricity and, and uh, you know, the structural behavior and so on. And the city, you know, when you look at it from here, you have this image of the city as, um, you know, just uh, the agglomeration of all these buildings and, and, and in between them are all the roads and we understand the flow of the traffic and so forth. Yet, when you add it all up, the city, of course, is much more than that and it's much more than that because it is a complex system and its complexity is manifested primarily through the fact that the only reason this is here is because of people is that it's the interaction between people and this is kind of the stage on which that interaction takes place and the whole point is that is a system that produces much more than just the interaction between individual people it produces enormous wealth it's a, this is a this machine here is a great wealth creator it's a great idea creator it innovates continuously um, and it uh, also produces some of the most innovative, not just ideas, but the innovative crime. It produces disease and so forth. All these things are all going on, you know, interdependently. And, um, and, and, and that does then bring up the question that is embodied in that rock. <laughs> and that is that uh, how in the hell could you have a science of that? I mean, because it's all so extraordinarily interdependent, it's historically contingent, you know, and so forth. And, um, and yet, we maybe we can come back to this, th this city actually um, has, in a kind of a coarse-grained way, a low-resolution way of looking at it, obeys all kinds of extraordinary laws that are totally not apparent when you just look at the whole thing and you think about it as a complex system. So we, maybe we can come back to that. And it's this interesting um, tension and dichotomy between the, um, the overwhelming diversity and complexity of something like a city or an organism or whatever, um, and, uh, you know, and, and made up of parts that are interacting at some level quite simply. It's really amazing. It's like an F equals MA type situation, yeah. the kinds of laws you've come up with for cities. And we'll definitely be cycling back to, to those questions. So Marcelo, um, you're a physicist at Dartmouth College, and I'd like to congratulate you. Your, his big news is that he's just founded and has received funding for the Institute for Cross-Disciplinary Engagement. Is that the right yep. term? Thanks for the PR. Which attempts to bridge the two cultures, to bring the sciences and the humanities together to solve some of the, the great problems of our time. Um, so, Marcelo, you've, you've done a lot of work on characterizing spatial complexity. Can you give us an example of, of how complexity kind of can be mapped out and spatially? So, it starts with the hard questions. But, um, of course, only. So, um, sure, we all can recognize something that looks simple. You know, for example, uh, something like the surface of a table without the rock, <laughs> right? So that's fairly simple. Uh, but of course, you can start creating patterns on that table and which may or may not be symmetric. So if you have patterns which are symmetric, they are more complicated than the table without anything, but 
But of course, if they have patterns which repeat, then you have a law which is being repeated, which is regular. And hence, it's more complex than no pattern, but it's still sort of organized. But then, of course, you can break that symmetry, and you can have all these patterns which are not symmetric. And then, of course, you have something which is more spatially complex than the, ta the table without anything or the table just repeating patterns. So that's a very basic example mm -hmm. of what you mean by that. But you can recognize things similar to that in the alphabet. Right? So, for example, if you're sending someone a text message, right? And if the text message is a string of 10 letters A, uh, well, that's kind of boring and not very interesting and is a simple kind of message, right? It's a pattern which is being repeated. But then if you have in those 10 slots any of the possible letters of the English alphabet, then you start creating more complex messages, right? And so you can quickly make an analogy between the patterns which are visual in space to the patterns which are auditory in language, and even in music. Music does exactly the same thing, right? So you have one single note which is being played, say, by a violin, right? And then you can make them more complex by having other instruments being added and more notes. And clearly, even though you may have repetitive patterns, they start adding more complex to, to that musical composition, right? So the same thing happens with patterns in nature, right? So you have, you look outside, and yes, there is an order, and, and you have to be kind of it's interesting that you look out this window and you realize that we humans like to impose symmetry to things. So you look at the, the buildings, they tend to be very symmetric with the exception of this weird new one which is being built here, right? But, um, but usually you do that, but in nature you see patterns more or less. So trees which are somewhat symmetric. We always in physics, we joke, you know, we say consider a spherical cow, right? So in physics we do this sort of gross simplification of things sometimes because that's much easier to deal than the true asymmetries and complexities of what you really see out there, right? Cool, cool. And finally, let me bring in Bernard Chazelle of, of Princeton University. He's originally a mathematician, and I guess now you're in a computer science department, so does theoretical computer science, but has been doing a lot of work lately on theoretical biology, trying to understand biology in, in, mathematical, in mathematical ways. So, Marcelo has been talking a little bit about spatial complexity. Can you talk a little bit about the time dimension and some of the interesting phenomena that occur when you bring time into the picture? Sure. Uh, well, first, I want to thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm not a physicist, so I just love the opportunity to mouth off about things I know nothing about, like physics. <laughs> to the contrary. And, um, Being modest. So, um, so, in computer science, we have a very specific definition of complexity, which is a tool by which we strive to classify problems according to how difficult they are or how easy they are. So it's, we try to find some metric which tells us this problem is hard, this problem is, is easy, this function is hard to compute, and uh, this one is easy. And the way we measure this is by using a tool called an algorithm, called a Turing machine if you want, but the algorithm I think is the, most, is the more important concept. Uh, that's the device uh, which computes and which solves problem and which allows us to define complexity of uh, time first, and then, but then also space and also randomness is uh, a measure of complexity. My interest in biology comes from the fact that uh, now I work on something called natural algorithms, which is the interpretation of the natural world, of the living world, via the lens, the prism of algorithms. 
And one of the basic question is, but what's wrong with classical mathematics? Classical mathematics has been very successful at doing physics. Got a physical problem, you got some equation, and usually it does an extremely good job. Let's do the same thing in biology. Let's find the math, you know, the uh, differential equations for cancer or something like this. Now, nobody believes that this is possible. So I think there are philosophical reasons why you cannot do that, because biology does not have the symmetries of the universe, and so and mathematics is the language of symmetries. It's really the language that expresses invariance and symmetries, and biology does not have that because biology is a historical science. It has all these contingencies from uh, inherited from history. So, however, um, you can look at everything living as a complex system in the sense where you have small or objects, a crowd of objects interacting uh, with simple rules, usually quite simple, could be different rules, but they're simple, interacting together, and creating order, structure, on a different scale. Now, it could be a time scale, uh, or it could be a length uh, scale. And you see this all around the living world. And now, you can have a reductionist approach that say, what well, to understand uh, why birds flock, to understand why bacteria do coron sensing, to understand why termites build mouths. Let's let, let just go down to the level of physics and just simply do this at the level of molecules and atoms. And, but nobody believes that this is possible. Why needs a different language? And as somebody who's spent a fair amount of time in my <coughs> professional life worrying about algorithms, I believe that what's missing is a language, the language of algorithms and not the language of equations. Uh, we can come back to this um, later if you want to explain what makes algorithms, which is the way by which living or you know, uh, things uh, uh, operate, differs from, from mathematical equations, is the notion of time. Hmm. Is the fact that um, physics is basically Markovian, which is basically you give me the the, the position momentum of the planets, and I'll just tell you what's going to happen in a thousand years from now in the solar system. Uh, in biology, it's not like that. Algorithms are simply di uh, different beasts, and the, what makes them the most different from equations is the fact that they actually use time. They actually have a very sophisticated way through memory, through archiving mechanisms, of basically inheriting history, of playing off history, and that requires a new language, I believe. So, I'll leave it at that. Well, those are other issues I'd like to, to get back to in the course of the discussion. And if I don't, feel free at the, during the Q&A to, to chime in on things that are of interest to you. But there's one, thing, one word that's been coming up here before I go into my next line of questions. Uh, actually, a pair of words that have come up, and I wanted to, to get some clarification from all of you. Complicated and complex. So is there a difference? Jeff, you're moving into position, so. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's two, two different things here. One is the difference between complicated and complex, and the other is the difference, the difference and this is not really a difference, or rather an extension of the word complexity to something, uh, of com something that's complex and adaptive, which is, you know, that, that distinguishes if there is complexity in that, deep down in that rock, um, it's not a kind of adaptive complexity as it is in what was just described in terms of biology. These are, in fact, uh, you know, the most fascinating complex systems are those that evolve and adapt. But going back to the complicated complexity, so, um, you know, simplicity is, um, you know, is manifested 
well, let's see, in Newton's laws, Newton's laws of motion, F equals ma, and Newton's laws of gravitation, which are extraordinary because they encode kind of an infinite amount of data, which tells you about any motion, basically, in principle at least, to any degree of accuracy. So the, the planets that were brought up, or the satellites, we know to any degree of accuracy. But um, to actually solve those equations in arbitrary situations can be incredibly complicated, even though the equations, you know, you can write it all on one page, the basic equations. Um, but you can't imagine doing anything like that for a city. You can't imagine, or a, or a cancer, or for the weather, um, you know, or the financial markets, maybe that's a better one, that there aren't two or three very simple equations um, which embody all of the dynamics, all of the evolution, all of the emergent behavior, um, and all its adaptive qualities. So and I think there's a, there's a fundamental difference there. And physics, by the way, um, has been enormously successful because it defined itself to be the science of simplicity, um, basically, right, in, in this language. Even though physics is extraordinarily complicated, and it's this thing is called, you, you, you wrote a book on the idiot's guide or whatever to string theory. Well, string theory in this language <laughs> might be, on the one hand, the most complicated, challenging kind of mathematical physics that has ever been um, uh, invented. But it's simple because the idea is that there's an equation that sort of in, uh, encodes and encapsulates every, uh, everything. A ridiculous idea, by the way. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's why it's for idiots. Can I, can I put a third word on the table? Yes. So the third word is sophistication. So some kinds of complex systems are sophisticated. We are, for example. Sometimes it's a matter of adaptation. Uh, if it's not adaptation in the, in the Darwinian sense, then it's adaptation in the sense that uh, intelligence uh, allows the ability to find your way around a place to adapt to changing circumstances. Uh, Manhattan is a complicated place. As I said earlier, you look out the window and you see this crazy mass of people going in every, every direction. Uh, traffic jams, subway delays. Uh, uh, you might wonder how anything ever gets done. Sophistication comes in in the, in the mind of every commuter. And that's what's responsible for the fact that by the end of the night, everyone has gotten where they're going. Hmm. So it's an interesting complexity in a way. There's a kind of a dimension orthogonal to simplicity of interestingness. Right, exactly. And a kind of adaptation that can lead to great simplicity. So people's lives are, are better because they're more predictable, they're more reliable, uh, thanks to the intelligence that gets you uh, a meal on the table and a place to sleep at the end of every night, no matter how bad, maybe, I sh maybe this is over-optimistic, almost no matter how bad the delays on the trains are. You know, actually, I can tell examples anyway. So. Um, one thing I think that's very striking about the panel, and in, they encapsulate a microcosm the entire study of, of complexity, is the sheer variety of systems that we're talking about here. So it's people driving, people walking, atoms banging uh, and against other, uh, molecules, banging against other molecules, and, and so forth. So one of the questions is why did we see that kind of universality in these physical laws, and to what extent we really can compare the atom to the driver, to the taxi driver, or, or whatever. Would anyone like to comment on how do we see 
Marcel, you're, you're nodding your head. I can't do that. <clears throat> I think it's good to kind of circle back and do a little bit of a historical yes. discussion here. So um, we study physics in school and we hear about reductionism all the time, right? That you have complex systems or difficult systems to understand and you break them down into little components and then you have the equations that describe those components and from that you hope to be able to add things up and have an understanding of a more complex system. So if you think, for example, of the Earth-Moon-Sun system, or oh, forget about that, just the Earth and the Moon system, right? You have the law of gravity, and that's how Newton showed that everything works the same as it works here. So that's beautiful, because to study that, you don't need to know that there is New York City on Earth. You don't need to know that uh, there are people. You just need to know the mass of the Earth, the mass of the Moon, the distance between the two, and that's it. So that's beautiful, and we in physics, we always say that you know, physics is sort of the art, the art of approximations and simplifications, right? So if you're a good physicist, you're able to strip the difficult problem down to its bare elements and solve it and still get something that makes sense for the more complicated system, right? Like the Earth is not a point mass and, and that kind of stuff, right? So reductionism is triumphant, right? I mean, it was the big idea that, you know, created this whole mechanical way of thinking about the universe, the clockwork, precise laws and everything, right? And from there, people said, okay, if that's true, then we may be able to extend this notion to everything. After all, everything is made, if you believe in, you know, the atomists, everything is made in, of little bits. And if you know the forces between these little bits, you should be able to write, solve the equations and, hey, you get to know everything. Even complicated things like free will and all sorts of things. So you have this faith in reductionism and determinism that was sort of the 18th and 19th century sort of. But then, of course, it's not true because as soon as you start adding more elements to your system, you get stuck. So Newton's law of gravity you mentioned is beautiful for two bodies, but if you put a third body there, you have a three-body problem that you cannot solve exactly. So you do perturbations, right? And we're all great at doing perturbations. So when I go teach my students, I say there are two problems we can solve in physics. The hydrogen <laughs> atom and the harmonic oscillator. Everything else is approximations around these two problems. Really, it's, it's, it's true. So we do this quantum physics of the hydrogen atom, but then you start putting another proton and you get to helium and then you have two electrons, and you get stuck real quickly. You can't do it, right? So that's where the quantum mechanics, which is complicated, is trying to do something which is complex, which is to study this atom that has many bodies interacting with one another. So I just think it's good to kind of keep these distinctions and why it's so hard to go from bottom up, the idea that you go from the bottom, you know, from atoms, etc., to describe something complex, and you can't, as Phil Anderson, in his Nobel Prize winning physicist from your university, says that more is different, which means that as you start putting different components together, the way they interact generates different novel behavior, which you cannot understand from the bottom up. There is a discontinuity in the way you go from this level to that level. So, Bernard. Yeah. Um, Biologists have often complained about this kind of reductionist uh, trend and argue that it doesn't really apply to their field. But you've been developing mathematical techniques that seem to allow us to gain some traction on these biological problems. Well, I've been trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still. Um, but I think um, 
in biology and certainly in the general field of algorithms, this is my, this is my take on uh, the uh, living world, there are some salient differences with, with classical <coughs> physics. And one of them is this idea of downward causation, that in physics, um, it's very important to be successful when you try to understand something successfully, to be able to separate scales, time scales or physical length scales. For example, the solar system, you don't have to know the placement of the molecules in, on Jupiter to know what's going to happen. And so also you can separate the scales and then you have these laws that are very important. So for example, if you look at Brownian motion, then actually it's like this random vibration. Actually, it's not even random, but we can pretend it's random. Uh, you know, sort of collisions between, between molecules and, the, it's a, and there are a huge number of them, 10 to the 24, something like that. And it's extremely complicated. So you think, well, there's nothing we can do. But in fact, that completely random behavior can be interpreted almost entirely deterministically. So you have diffusion equation that will tell you what happens. And so if you moved to a different scale, then you have a different language that allows you to completely ignore what happens below. And you keep on doing this. And so we mentioned universality, which is one really of the reason why physics is so successful when you see this kind of very general ways of separating scales, uh, like what I just mentioned. In biology, this, is, this rarely happens because the whole thing of adaptation is precisely to have the causal error also going down, where big macroscopic effects will have direct effect, you know, impact on things at the molecular level. And, and is these feedback loops between all scales being mixed together, which means the classical tools of mathematics don't work because it's just the wrong language. And um, so, and, but that is something that in algorithms, people who work on distributed computing, people who design the internet, have faced and, and, and are still facing. So I'm not saying the two things are the same at all. Biology is vastly more complicated than anything humans have ever designed like computer system. But I'm just saying that there is some of that flavor which you do not find in physics because physics is blessed with these beautiful mathematics, these beautiful symmetries. Do you think there's an extent to which there's a cherry picking of problems here that we see these regularities in complex systems because we've picked the complex systems that have the regularities? Or is it more of a generic quality of, of large interacting systems? Any, anybody? Well, I think one way we know that there's a lot of simplicity and regularity and stability in the world is by seeing how evolved life is. So that the adaptations that we see around us are the result of, for the most part, of uh, uh, these episodes in which very, very small differences, say in some camouflage scheme uh, or say some body structures, just made a very small difference to a death rate or a birth rate or something like that. And somehow the world has managed in all the different spheres where natural selection happens to, to create uh, uh, the possibility that these very small differences in, say, death rate can also persist for long enough, so be stable enough for, to allow selection to actually run its course, and to fill all of the niches we see around us with uh, amazing life forms. So I think for that, for that reason, the adaptedness of life is in fact um, very strong evidence that regularity and simplicity and stability is, is more the rule than the exception in complex systems. Is it a given that we would see adaptation of that sort? I mean, is it wired into the physical laws somehow, or? Well, I mean, 
I, I think in, in some sense it must be, but it, it's, a, it's a bit of a mystery where it comes from. You think how complicated, even just at the level of organisms and ecosystem is, you know, everything is desperately trying to eat everything else. Uh, the, the trying to predict the, the fate of any particular animal is incredibly difficult because it depends on so many little, little ways about, things about the way things are set up. Little distances moving, moving this animal three inches to the right makes a difference between whether it gets eaten or not. Uh, there's so much contingency, so much chaos in the way these systems work. It's, it's, it's extraordinary that in the long run, uh, these, this stability with such precision can exist. So I, I believe that there's got to be a reason for it, but uh, the, the answer is going to have to be some some, and this is, this is what I think about uh, when I have my complexity head on. But the, the answer has got to be some very, very broad, very mathematical, very abstract property of the way things in a very general sense interact in a very general sense. Hmm. Jeffrey, can you, can you maybe ground this in a concrete example of how, can you actually almost walk us through how behaviors can interact to give you this, these higher order regularities? How does it happen in the world? Well, let's see. Let's see if I can do it in five minutes. <laughs> um, well, first of all, uh, let me bring various pieces together that's just, just been talked about. Um, one is, um, of course, if you think of yourself, you are exactly what you said. I mean, there's multiple levels, but they're all interconnected. So, you know, you have your, your part of an ecosystem. You're an individual. Inside you are um, a whole bunch of networks. In fact, basically, you are a bunch of networks uh, distributing energy and information. Um, and then you go down to cells, cellular level. There's networks within, within cells. And within cells, there are mitochondria. And inside mitochondria, you know, there's, in each of your cells, roughly, there's maybe 500 to 1,000 little engines that are producing energy, but that energy is actually being produced inside each mitochondrion by maybe 500 little molecular machinery. So inside each cell, there's um, up to a million of these little engines producing ATP, your currency of energy, and there's 10 to the 14th cells in your body. And all of that has to go on in some extraordinary interactive way um, and in a way that re remains robust and resilient at the individual level for an order of 100 years, which is kind of extraordinary. So um, I think, so I'm putting into words what you said. The fact that that happens and that there are people in this room that have been doing it, like me, for well over 70 years <laughs> is, is an existence proof. That you know there is there are underlying laws that are somehow governing this, and those laws are emergent laws. They're not. I don't think they're fundamental in the sense that we think of Newton's laws. These are emergent laws that have come from the many-body interactions of, at, at multiple levels. Um, but and, and that gets manifested. I think what is extraordinary, what brought me into this whole area out of. I, I spent most of my career doing quarks and gluons and string theory and dark matter and all those wonderful things, which are the complete other end of the spectrum. But what got me into this was that um, if you look at any uh, physiological variable you can think of that can be measured about an organism, 
um, things like its metabolic rate, how much energy you need to stay alive. A second, uh, the, the length of your aorta, um, how long you live, I don't know, the, the size of your capillaries, whatever. And you ask, how does that change as I go over just all mammals, for example, to begin with, from a shrew, which is this size, to a, a blue whale, which is 100 million times bigger. Um, they follow very simple laws, extraordinarily simple laws. And you can understand those by, in a macroscopic way, not at an individual level, but for, the, in a, uh, for thinking um, in an average sense, um, by understanding the mathematics and physics of the networks that are supporting those, those systems. Jeffrey, let me stay with you for a moment. Can you give me a specific example of such a law and why it happens? Okay. Um, so, the, as I mentioned, metabolic rate. So, metabolic, I don't know what, what level to talk about this, but metabolic rate scales with the mass of the organism. In mathematics, the statement is, with a, with, as a power law, with an exponent of three quarters, which means the following. What three quarters means as a power law means the following. If I take the, the, the ratio, if I look at two different animals, and I take the ratio of their masses, um, and I, if I knew the metabolic rate of one of them, then to get the metabolic rate, the metabolic rate of the other one, you cube the number and then take the square root twice. Amazing. So if you know the metabolic rate of one animal, you know the metabolic rate of every other animal, every other animal on the average, by this simple law. And it turns out that sort of law permeates anything you can measure about the life history, meaning even how many children, offspring they have, or how long you're going to live, to any physiological component. And where does that come from? That comes, as I said, from uh, analyzing the mathematics and generic properties of the networks, the universal properties of networks that support life, from your respiratory system, your circuitry system to the networks within cells or the ecological networks that connect uh, an ecosystem. Um, and these all have the same universal mathematical properties. Hmm. I won't say, I mean... No, that, that's, that's, that's beautiful. Um, and it is, and by the way, it's, whether it's right or wrong, it's very spiritual. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because it's to do with the unity, happy. the unity of you know, of, of, of uh, life around us. And amazingly, that gets reflected in the life, in, in the, the, the similar laws for cities. Marcelo, one thing that you've studied actually was at the topic of your two books ago, uh, or one of the topics you brought up was the origin of life. Which book was that? It, um, not a, Island, a, but... A Dare Dead of Creation. Yes. Maybe. So do you also see in these kind of prebiotic systems similar scaling laws? Is it something that had to settle down in the course and history of life? It's funny you say that because I was just going to ask Jeff a question. So if, if there is alien life... If there's what? Alien, alien life, life, yes. Do you think it would follow the same scaling laws? Uh, so, uh, yeah. I think that's sort of yes, connected. Exactly. Yes, so, you know, yes, so in answer to that, I'd first say, you know, there's what alien life would actually look like and what its actual structure, you know, I mean, its superficial structure. Mm -hmm. That I think you can't say anything about. You know, whether it has four eyes and right. two legs or no, or whatever, you know, it's yeah. plasma or whatever. But mm -hmm. 
I would say that they do follow scaling laws like this, and they would be remarkably similar because these laws, and I didn't say this, which is an additional huge assumption, but is um, uh, somehow given credibility by the fact that it, uh, from this assumption, uh, you get all these scaling laws, which agree with enormous amounts of data, and that is optimization a bad word generally in natural selection, that the system, um, in some ways, these evolving systems, the continuous feedback mechanisms that are implicit in natural selection <laughs> leads to something being optimized. And the one, just to give one example, and why it relates to alien life maybe, is the circulatory system that we all share, not just everybody in this room, but every mammal that's ever existed has optimized the, is, is optimized in the sense that the amount of energy needed to keep you alive, pumping blood through your circuitry system, is minimal with respect to any change in the configuration of the network on the, on the average. Namely, you know, if you doubled, in other words, if you doubled the length of everybody's aorta, you would require more energy to pump blood through your system. If you halved it, you would require more. Any change, any significant change would. And uh, the reason for that can be related to Darwinian fitness in the sense that you do that because you want to minimize the amount of energy that you devote to the mundane issue of keeping yourself alive so that you can have more sex and have more children <laughs> and so forth. So that's the idea. That's kind of the conceptual yeah, framework. So. Right. so to go back just to So therefore back. it would be, the, so my answer would yeah. be, you know, speculatively, that it would be quite similar, actually, those, if you could measure such phenomena. Right. And I would say that, you know, we know now that we can, we don't know anything about how life started here, right? This jump between inorganic to organic is one of the big mysteries of science. But one thing we do know is that there is something called the LUCA, which is the last universal common ancestor, which is supposed to be, if you, if you trace life backwards, it's going to end up in some bacteria billions of years ago. And I assume that bacteria follows the same sort of... Yeah, they do. Law. They do. I didn't say yes. Right? They follow the same sort of... So if they law. do, then the answer is yes. That in order to create that first living thing, you know, you somehow, the molecules would have to conspire in such a way that the way they burn energy or they, make, yeah, they have exactly. a metabolic rate works according to exactly. that Exactly. It's the almost idea. like a design principle for living things. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Bernard, you commented earlier just on the, on the difficulty of gaining some mathematical traction on biological systems. But on the other hand, Jeff seems to have gained some traction through these scaling laws. Are, can we go deeper than, than scaling laws? Or Yeah, so th there's no doubt that there are laws in biology, and, and Jeff does, just gave some uh, very uh, eloquent uh, example of that. Um, I can also ask whether there are limitations uh, in the hope that we are going to find laws. Let's start with some kind of a paradox, which is that, uh, I mean, we, our intuition tells us that the human brain is much more complicated than the solar system, and, or is much more complicated than the behavior of hydrogen uh, atoms, uh, uh, you know, bonding together and so on. And yet, when you look at the current theories of one versus the other, you will find that the current theories of the brain, I mean the theories, not the actual knowledge about the brain, which is 
complicated. But the theories of the brain are virtually trivial. <laughs> the theories of just finding out what a few atoms of hydrogen do together is immensely complicated in the sense it's going to take many years of graduate school in advanced quantum mechanics to really understand this. In biology in general, the theory is conceptually virtually trivial. And that is a paradox because if the organism is much more complicated, how come is much more complex. How come the theory is much simpler? Well, because there's no theory. That's the reason why. <laughs> yeah, the theory is much more complicated. We just don't know what it is. And so, to me, it is not obvious. I mean, I'm an optimist, maybe. But, so, but it's not obvious from a philosophical uh, point of view. And maybe Michael can uh, chime in. It is not obvious to me that every collection of physical processes has a science behind it. I mean. To have a science, it has the physical world has to match your brain, your cognitive abilities, which are very limited. Let me I'll talk for myself here, but you know, there's only certain things one brain can uh, comprehend, and it just so happens that in physics, a lot of that happens to match what we're able to understand, and that's just wonderful. Now, in biology or other fields like this, it's completely not obvious to me that that has to be the case. Now, the reason I believe it might be the case, but I'm not sure, it might be the case is because of the thing that we alluded to, the fact that things work, that actually evolution works. And what I mean by this is that you could imagine a world very much similar to ours, but maybe you change the charts of the elements a little bit, the periodic table, you just change the, the, you know, the bonding coefficients and so on, and then, and, and then you see you know, a soup of DNA, RNA soup with some kind of replication going on, and it never gets past this. The, the longest polymer, you know, living polymer you get is 10 uh, base pair, and it's just a tiny thing, and that's it. And you can wait a trillion years, and you'll never get, well, everything Darwin has said still applies. It just gets stuck for reasons that have to do with chemistry, with physics, not with natural selection. and. Now, why is it that in our world, things are not like that? Things actually work. And you know, you go from, in 3.5 billion years, you go from uh, the first form of life to you know, Albert Einstein. I mean, and so uh, th this is really rapid. This is quick, right? With 3.5 billion, uh, I mean, 3 billion base pairs, 3.5 billion years, it's about a new uh, base pair every single year on average that you have to find. This is incredibly rapid. It is so hard to believe, but this could be wishful thinking. It's so hard to believe that there are not some graspable principles that we have not yet gotten our hands on. And that will not explain, I don't think we'll ever explain biology, but at least shed some non-trivial theoretical conceptual light on what's going on. Because right now, conceptually, it is trivial. And that is a big problem, in my view. So you see a theory along the lines of Schrodinger equation, I mean, the analogy won't be the same, of course, but something at that level of yeah, specificity. Yeah, which would produce laws that the sort of thing Jeff is talking about, but they would not have to do with metabolic rate or things, but they would have to do with other parts of biology. But, but I think that's what makes it feel so exciting, because I think there's a good chance that there are such things, and within 10, 20, 30 years, some young people will find them. That's very exciting. Whereas, I hate to say it, but in theoretical physics, the next big I mean, the low-hanging fruits are, are, are kind of taken. I mean, the next big breakthrough, I think, is going to be very difficult <laughs> in theoretical physics. You know, I, yeah. in biology, I don't think so. I think bi biology is still awaiting its Albert Einstein and Schrodinger and, and uh, you know, these people. Interesting. Yeah. Michael, I'll see you.
Can I give, I'll, I'll give yeah. you, this is really more of a philosophical argument Please. than a scientific argument. Why it might be the case that, that what explains why things work, why we get the kind of stability and regularity that we need to have biology up and running, why those explanations might in fact be simple enough for us to be able to grasp them. The idea is, is something like this, that, that for an explanation to apply in so many different places to every kind of ecosystem, to every kind of subsystem of the body, uh, well maybe every is a little strong, but to have, such a, to have a really wide range of applicability in explaining uh, uh, stability, it must be in some sense a kind of a simple explanation because if it were a complicated explanation, a complicated explanation requires lots of moving parts and those moving parts all have to be calibrated so they fit together and do their thing when they're in the same place. Too many moving parts means a fragile explanation that's not going to reliably come along and make sense of stability in this ecosystem or this mitochondrion so and so on. Try to, to rebut this argument. I mean, you could well be right. You, you could well be right. But I look at the example of thermodynamics. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, early 19th century, you know, all the, the English engineers were trying to design better and better steam engines and they were just having a tough time getting those things to be more efficient. You know, and they were measuring a gazillion things. They were doing the big data of the time, trying to engineer those bigger and bigger machines. You see these, uh, you know, the, the, the drawings that they have was just amazing. And then a bunch of people, Carnot, Clausius, and Boltzmann, just come along and say, well, actually, you know, there are just five numbers you need to understand. And you get these five numbers, and that's it. We'll give, we'll give you exactly what you... I mean, the entire theory holds from uh, five numbers. Now, one of the, some of these numbers are trivial, like volume, pressure, but some others are very subtle. <laughs> Temperature is very subtle, entropy is very subtle, and you know, th uh, things like that. So here's my fear, is that mm. there is a simple theory, but they involve collective, collective variables, which are not humanly graspable. Maybe computers can grasp them, but these are collective variables which, instead of simply summing up the way in physics you just sum up all these actions and just get an average, they, they just involve you know, mathematical functions which are simply not something that we're familiar with. But once you have these sort of change of basis, the, of functional mm. basis, then maybe these laws are very simple. And, but it's just that, like what is the corresponding entropy of biology? Maybe it's some kind of collective variables that is a very difficult for humans to grasp. I'm not saying this is the case, by the way. I'm just saying, why not? Hmm. And I'm I, saying uh, why. Which uh, <laughs> <laughs> happens to be my professional specialty. <laughs> I'd like to, can I add just one Please. small point to that? And that is that, um, yes, I mean, it, 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 the bigger question is, um, you know, is there a, um, um, a general theory of complexity? That's the question. Mm -hmm. and, and in particular, of, of adaptive systems. And, uh, and, and indeed, thermodynamics is, you know, is a fantastic example in the history of science where um, something that, that, that has built into it some ideas of complexity, actually, was, uh, was developed. And in fact, you know, the second law of thermodynamics is maybe the most fundamental law of all physics. It's the one that's immutable, so to speak. Uh, but we have another piece of, uh, that comes in when we start thinking of um, evolving systems, and particularly biology and social systems, you know, the kind of things that's going on here, if we want to try to have equations that describe, you know, meetings and institutions and society and so on. 
Um, and that is the role of information. And, uh, you know, because that plays a crucial role, obviously, in, the, uh, in, in biological systems, uh, both in terms of uh, the way they reproduce and the way they function and so forth. And it certainly does in social systems where information is even more critical in some ways than in biology because it ha ha has to happen on an extraordinarily short time scale. Um, which is quite different than in biology. So the, the real challenge, I think, if there is a theory, and I'm actually quite skeptical, I'm, I would love to believe, even though, even though everything I've said, you know, there, has to be, there have to be principles and laws, but actually being, uh, maybe this is what I should say, to be able to put it, and maybe I'm agreeing with what you'll say, I realize, namely to mathematize it, to put it into the analog to equations, I don't know what, what they are, I think, is something we will never do because it does involve this extraordinary integration of thermodynamics, energy, metabolism on the one hand, information on the other, which is either uh, you know genomics or neural processes or wealth creation or whatever. These are all informational kinds of things. To integrate all those um, in a way that um, maintains or uh, that that the conceptual framework of science that we've had seems to me um, just an impossible task. And, and it may be, and I believe, actually, in principle, impossible. Marcel? Right, because uh, I think it's for everybody. Uh, <clears throat> because is, am I right to assume that when you talk about laws, you're, you're talking about the hope for predictability? Yeah, I'm sorry. I was meant to add that, because we're both physicists. Right. And law has implicit in it, and well, I would even say explicit in it, the idea that it should be predictable and verifiable. Right. And I'm, I'm sorry, I should have said that because that's what I mean by laws, and that may be too narrow. Right. And, and, and too much of, uh, of, of an empty hope when you have a biological yeah, system. Point. Exactly. I think, is that more or less what you're trying to say? Because, you know, there is so much contingency, you know, from the outside. Yeah. You know, the idea that natural selection works, yes, but it depends on mutations. And it depends on historical contingencies. You know, if the asteroid didn't kill the dinosaurs, the history of life on Earth would be completely different. How could you possibly create a theory of that that is predictable? You know, I think it may be that you just can't do it, and that's okay. But you don't need to predict to have predictive power to have an explanation. We can understand a lot of things that have happened sure. in human history. Uh, have real, a real grasp of why they came out the way they did, but we would never have been able to predict them ahead of the right. fact. So that's why it's important perhaps to take predictability mm. out of this picture, right? I think so. Yeah. It becomes less Bernard, do you think we're in <laughs> biology? Well, no, I'm sorry. Right, right, yeah, yes, less interesting, but more realistic. Certainly less lucrative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Bernard, if, if I'm understanding one thing you're saying correctly, so please correct me if I'm not, is biology today almost in the same position physics was in 1830? Didn't have energy, didn't have entropy, didn't have these really foundational concepts. And once it did, lots of things fell into place. It did have energy, because Newton introduced energy. Oh, it didn't have not, no, not of in energy the thermodynamics sense. Not in the thermo not the sense. I mean, what thermodynamics brought to it was that you know heat, chemical energy. And so forth are the same. Right. You know, or that universality. Okay. Didn't have transferability yeah. and yeah. universality yeah. of the concept of, yeah. en of energy. Well, nothing would be better than that 
if, if that were the case. Because then, frankly, if biology is what physics was in the early 19th century, then the future is very bright yeah. for biology, yeah. extremely yeah. bright. Now, maybe good things don't happen all the time. I mean, it's uh, uh, that's why I've been much more humble in my. You know, in physics, you can write on one page equations that, yeah, they're very difficult to, you know, that's why physicists are employed, because we need smart people to explain to us what to do with these equations. But still, there are these equations, you can write them on one page, and in theory, they explain pretty much 99% of what's going on, which is just absolutely a miracle, I think. Now, forget about that happening in biology. Let's forget about this. I, my quest is much more humble. Just simply give me a nice, um, like second law, or, or a nice understandable principle, not even a law maybe that can use for prediction, but some kind of non-trivial conceptual principle in biology where I, I can go, why? This is amazing. Because to me, when I was a kid, I remember going to science, I was always attracted by what I found magical. I mean, to me, science is magic. If there's no magic in science, then I'm not interested. And, uh, and same with mathematics. Mathematics has lots of things that seem just magical. Of course, then you can explain them. But the, the sense of awe of seeing something. And biology is absolutely awesome. I mean, you just look at things and you say, there's no way. It's awesome because if, some, if, if life did not exist and somebody came to you on a piece of paper and said, hey, I've got a, I'm going to engineer life, and this is the way we're going to do it. You would read the blueprint, and you would say, no, this is never going to work. This is never, ever going to work. Dream on. It's like the kid with Lego blocks and say, I'm going to build the Empire State Building with my Lego blocks. You know, this is not going to work. And yet, it did work. So that, to me, is awesome, and I would love that the field of biology follow the same track of, of, of physics, not necessarily in explaining everything, but in providing young people with with conceptual material that is truly awesome. Like, uh, and, and physics is full of things like this. But we run in the risk of repeating a mode of thinking which is not a biological mode of thinking. Hmm. You know, maybe that's not what biology is about. You mean being awesome? No. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm it talking about. It's obviously awesome, but it may not be quantifiable and lawful in the same way that you expect with that physics is, you know, so perhaps with transfer and expectation that may not be there. And the way biology works is just by the amazing things that have been done now, you know, all the genetic engineering and all the things that are being done, which is a tremendous revolution for this century of I, science. Yeah. If, if I can quickly push back and now just yeah. that from te te uh, technologically, engineering wise, it is revolution. Uh, right. I totally agree. But conceptually, scientifically, to me, there's very little there. Uh, there. I mean, genomics has, you know, engineering is great. Yeah, biotechnology is, is, is amazing. But there's very little to put your curious intellectual mind, you know, and just go into and say, okay, fine, yeah, so we sequence. Okay, fine. So we can read the letters, we, we cut them, we glue them, we paste them. Wonderful! <laughs> but this is not the same thing as quantum mechanics, where you're just absolutely awed by the, by the concepts not just by the science itself. I want to distinguish between the physical process and the science. The science is what humans can make of a physical process. Mm -hmm. The science can be awesome while the physical material is not awesome at all. I mean, I'm not sure what hydrogen bouncing around is awesome. I, I don't get it. But <laughs> quantum mechanics is awesome. 
the science is awesome, but I don't, I'm, I'm not that impressed by hydrogen myself, so it's not. <laughs> well, being largely hydrogen myself, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just wanted to, um, I wanted to remind us that this is actually about complexity and not just oh, biology. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I think even more challenging than biology, actually, is to understand um, um, the, the, the something that's come out of biology, which is us, in terms of our social interactions. You know, something that, you know, didn't exist on this planet, and for all we know, doesn't exist anywhere in the universe, uh, and that is social life. You know, the, something that happened only in the last 10,000 years, roughly, and really only in the last few thousand years. And, uh, and this, you know, in the last couple of hundred years. And that is truly extraordinary. And trying to understand that and understand where all of that dynamic came from and how that gets incorporated with love and hate and envy and, uh, you know, excitement and awe. Where in the hell does all that sit in this? And how could we ever imagine that we're going to have a science, scientific theory that explains all of that and that we can, let alone quantify it and be predictable, um, I think is, um, you know, that's a huge challenge, by the way. I mean, I'm very, I'm very skeptical. But having said that and having said the things we have about biology, I think it would be a mistake not to try as absurd as it may sound, that is to have, and that of course brings up the whole question of consciousness and so forth. Sure. And, well, we definitely have you know, to try. Michael, I, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think one of your. You're, oh. you're running out of time. Oh, really? I thought I had another 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the moderator, and I, I can't even go on. Okay. <laughs> Let's take questions from, from everyone here. Please, there's, we'll go back and, and forth. While and while we're doing that, if we get a round of applause for. Our moderator and panel. Thank you. The first question came from a software engineer. In his experience of working in a team, everyone is generally in favor of taking the simplest approach. But often, because people think so differently, people might have a radically different idea of what simple means. To one person, simple might mean a single piece of information that's extremely subtle and holds the entirety of a project inside it. And to another, it might mean many pieces, each of which is easier to understand but doesn't tell the whole story on its own. How does this relate to complexity? I think that this connects to what Jeff was saying. I think that social interactions uh, is a very multifarious, very complex, varied um, uh, collection of, of you know, in, in interaction forces and contributions from, from creative people from all different kinds. And intelligence or the, the ability of accomplishing a goal in a group will benefit from a large variety of people. And I just do not believe that you can simply assign a metric that says that, you know, I mean, well, so would, it's a you, highly multidimensional vector space where at some point there are people that are just... Well, you, you could define, you know, memory for details as a, as a major component of intelligence. Clearly, somebody who has a good memory for details is, is more intelligent than someone who does, does not, at least with regard to that component. So these, these two people are both smarter than each other, just in different yeah, ways. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Um, um, 
I mean, I, somehow, I think that if writing software was really important for survival, then we would have some kind of linear metric simply by Darwinian you know, natural selection. But that's not the case. So I think you've got to have a, you know, a social universe with a lot of uh, diversity. Not yet the case. Next, someone asked about the weather. It's a physical phenomenon that we've been studying as long as we've been on this planet, but no one has ever been able to accurately predict more than a few days into the future. What are the panel's thoughts about that? That's uh, true. <laughs> How, however, uh, the fact that it's, pre it's reasonably stable in the relative long term is uh, pretty much essential to the continued existence of life on Earth. So, Michael, I think you can go deeper than that. You've, you've, got, you've talked about in some of your work how reality is partitioned. And you can kind of tra traverse from a lower level to an upper level by thinking about fluctuations. So could that apply to climate as well? That's true. As, you, as, as I think a number of us have actually made remarks along this line, as you move from level of description to level of description, sometimes things get more complicated, but sometimes they get simpler. So the cycle of the seasons is a lot simpler and more regular and more stable than, than uh, uh, the pattern of rain over the next week. Uh, in bodies as well, you have great regularity and simplicity that allows them to work properly, but when they go out into the, into the, the fray, uh, you have a lot of complexity and unpredictability. But then in the even longer term still, predictability in some things comes back. And other things like revolutions and financial crises, much less so. That's the human weather. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Next, someone asked about self-driving cars. If cities are such complex and unpredictable systems, how will self-driving cars navigate them using what will have to be relatively simple algorithms? I'll have a go at that. Um, so, um, you know, that's one of, the, one of the pitfalls of dealing with complex systems is, uh, and it was brought up near the beginning of the conversation, and that is that uh, you isolate pieces of it. You know, and, uh, and, and, and assume, or it's implicit in it, that if you added all the pieces back up, that would be the, the, the system. And of course, it's not that at all. And I said that in the beginning, talking about this, the city of New York. The city of New York is not, um, you can't isolate the um, traffic system, the transport system from um, its um, economics. Uh, from uh, its dealings with the health issues, its dealings with poor. These are all, each one of these could be thought of as a complex adaptive system, but the whole thing is an integration of all those. So um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's actually, it's, it's going to be extremely interesting if, if and when we try to transition to driverless cars, which um, may well indeed be um, uh, controlled to a greater or lesser degree by simple algorithms, uh, what that actually does to the city. I mean, we have no idea and no one, and I don't suppose there's a single person working on this that has thought about that other than how to make the, the, the transportation system based on driverless cars work, but without taking into account at all what its effect will be on every other aspect of the um, of of a city, and this has been uh, you know typical. I mean, after all, the trains run according to algorithms. 
right? I mean, there's a, I, I don't suppose they think of them as algorithms, but they run on algorithms. As a, you can, we could, I could take out my iPhone and probably tell you what uh, you know the next train leaving Grand Central or what the metro is doing and so the subway is doing and so forth. But uh, you know, um, I'm not sure. You know, that's good for in a very limited sense. But the city is so much more than that. And I would even argue it's actually the most trivial part of a city hmm. because the most, uh, the most interesting part of the city is actually what those people are doing interacting with each other. And by the way, can I add one other thing in terms of uh, emotion? So you can prove a theorem. I can, so this is interesting, that if you assume that it's someone said, the sit, one of us said, the city is all these people running around doing this. Turns out that's not true. You know, almost every journey in the city is you're going from your home to your office or your home to the store or the home to the theater or to a school and, and back and back. And you're trying to do it in the shortest possible time over the shortest possible distance on the average. Okay, that's typical what's happening in every city. Turns out if you put that into mathematics, you can prove an interesting theorem. That if you take any piece of New York, this little piece of New York here, and you ask how many people are coming here from one kilometer, two kilometers, 10 kilometers, 50 kilometers away, and how many of those are coming once a day, once a week, once a month, once a year? And you can prove a theorem that that should go as the inverse square of the distance times the inverse square of the frequency. And God help us, it's true. Wow. It's true in data that you can get from New York, Boston, Dakar in Senegal, Singapore, Lisbon, and so on. Wow. So that's a complex system, but actually has, despite the fact that it looks like some random gas, and everybody's you know, running around like chickens with their heads cut off, actually, there's unbelievable regularity. No algorithms. It is. It's evolved that way wow. because people want to optimize. That's, uh, that's why I go back to the optimization. There's some weird aspect of optimization going on. In the next question, an audience member quoted from the book A Different Universe by the Nobel Prize winning physicist Robert Laughlin, in which he said that he's increasingly persuaded that all physical law has collective origin and that there's not a logical deductive path from the microscopic to the collective phenomenon. What does the panel think about this? I know Bob Lofton quite well <laughs> and have discussed that with him. I'm agnostic on that. I don't know the answer. I don't think there's... And, it, and, and by the way, it also depends on, you know, as often these things do, on uh, uh, rigor and a little bit in the eyes of the beholder as to, you know, when you say you can derive this... This, this emergent behavior from something underlying, for example. I mean, even the laws of thermodynamics from statistical mechanics, still, I think, people debate. Yes. So it's, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a little bit as to what you are satisfied with. It's, it's true that we, we people actually don't have such a great appetite for complex explanations, even if they're right. out there. What we, what we love is yeah. something simple and exactly. beautiful where everything comes together and you see it has to be so. A long, dragging out, dragged <laughs> yeah, out right. deduction from initial conditions. We're not going to give out any prizes for that. But what <laughs> about this question of the autonomy of the different 
up yeah, different levels. <laughs> you need I, your... I myself have, have, have a kind of reductionist faith that uh, with a lot of mathematics, mm -hmm. you, can, you, you could in principle get there. Uh, my comment was, was a, a more practical comment on whether you would want to actually get there, how, how, how scenic the highway would be from the laws of physics to the rest of the universe. Marcelo, I mean, this is something you've commented on quite a lot, whether you could boil physics down to string, be it string theory or some other uh, ultimate theory. Is that where we're going? No, oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking because more that, in terms uh, No, I think he, the gentleman is gone, but, uh, oh, there he is. I think that um, he was saying that it is possible to have these different levels, and but you can go from one to the other and then to the other, and then you can keep going up. Even though different laws are effective at different levels, you can jump from a level to another level. And that this emergent behavior from level to level is kind of explainable from bottom up. I think that's, and I don't see exactly how that goes. I mean, if that's the, the case, I didn't read Bob's book, and um, then I don't see how you can go from uh, quarks and gluons to protons and atoms and molecules and microbiological molecules and cells with 500 mitochondria and whatever to neural networks that connect billions of neurons to self-awareness in a single sort of like in a, in, a, in a path. I think that sounds just hopeless. I agree. I agree with that, but but I would say one thing that uh, you know that I, I, I this is a funny way of saying it, but somehow if we you know we know quarks exist, that maybe even strings exist, but embodied and encoded in those is life and consciousness. Wow. That's a okay. because it came out of that. <laughs> it came from that. That's the idea. So that's a soft version of this. What's the relationship between information and complexity? There are ways of quantifying complexity using information theory, right? So there's a fellow called Claude Shannon that in 1948 came up with a measure of entropy of information where he was interested in message transmission, you know, and he wanted to quantify how complex a transmission had to be and how compressible that transmission had to be so that you could use less bits of data to send signal from A to B, right? And so there is a way in, in, in which you can do that. And, and I think my first remark was about this idea that if you have a string of A's, you know, it's a very simple message, predictable, because you know what the next thing is going to be. But if you have a string of, 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 of letters which you do not know what the next one is going to be, and it could be any one of the, alphabet, the English alphabet, for example, that's going to be a more complex measure, and you can actually compute the complexity of that message using this, uh, this formalism. And so that work that you mentioned before is I'm trying to adapt that sort of information theory to the shapes of nature. So that in a sense, you know, everything that, is, that exists could be, in principle be decomposed into a sum of different waves. And you can think of these waves as letters of a certain alphabet. And you can use Shannon's entropy measure to calculate the complexity of the shapes in nature. Do you think information is something above and beyond physical systems, physical reality? That is one of the hardest questions. You know, is the it from bit 
mm. kind of thing, right? I mean, what comes first, right? The stuff or the information about the stuff? And, uh, and Sounds like the stuff. <laughs> or else, what's the information about? How can you have information without energy? Or how can you have stuff without the information, information to make the stuff? So, you know, well, you, you just that. mess them. That. Uh, uh, Bernard, did you have a comment? Yeah, I'd like to add something about information, which I, I think there's, there's some confusion about the word. I mean, the genius of Claude Shannon was to take information, a concept that everybody's intuition has, that's basically semantics. I mean, information is what you mean to say to somebody, the contents of what you're saying. That's what information And he said, no, 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 no. For doing radio transmission and telephone and so on, we're going to forget about what it is you want to say. We're simply going to look at the bits that you're sending, purely syntactical. That was an absolute leap of genius to do that. And that created a whole field which has been extremely successful. But let's not forget that because of that, the word information is really a syntactical concept. and and in biology, that is not the case. And so it's not enough to count to do sort of you know, probability uh, theory over how many different strings of this and that you have. And uh, you also have to take into account what these strings do. And that basically ties back information into all the rest as a dynamical system. And it loses a lot of its of it punch. Then, then, then what's left is information as something you can copy something you can pass on to others, something you can clone, and that's very useful. But I think people often confuse word information by simply taking its syntactical component and forgetting that in biology what we care about is what it does, mm -hmm. which is a whole different <clears throat> ballgame. Yeah, which, by the way, makes uh, getting a theory so, uh, so incredibly challenging. Mm. It's because you can't use that simple, I mean, the Shannon concept mm -hmm. of information is so incredibly limited in its applicability. The next question was about a concept called Hilbert space, which has to do with the theory of multiple overlapping dimensions. Is this a useful concept for developing a general theory of self-organizing systems? One thing that makes complexity really complicated is that it's not like superposition. Superposition is, in a way, a, a very simple way for things to combine. They all just sit there in layers, the in some sense, not really interacting with one another. So exactly. So, the, so we need, we can, have the, we can have a representation of all the different states, but then we also need to understand the interactions between them. Exactly. So, admittedly, an infinite number of dimensions gives you a lot to work with, <laughs> but <laughs> you have to use those. That it's, one, it's one thing to represent the complexity using many, many dimensions, but then understanding why something correctly represented in that way behaves the way that it does is a whole additional feat. But, but I think the problem is that um, if you take that language, it's, it's very likely the space is infinite dimensional. I mean, that's the problem. And the question is, to what extent you know, can you... Uh, you know, kind of thin the degrees of freedom, so to speak. I mean, can you re reduce that to something that's workable? And in some cases you can, and that's why some progress has been made in some problems. But mostly, I suspect it's infinitely dimensional, effectively infinitely dimensional, which means it's intractable. And so you either you need a different paradigm and a different mathematics for describing it, um, or it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a hopeless task, in principle a hopeless task. 
What's the relationship between complexity theory, chaos theory, and fractals? Wow, that's a big question. Um, any, anyone want to tackle it, or do you want to refer them to a reference? Well, I could say one thing, okay. which I think is chaos is, in fact, very important for the emergence of simplicity uh, in systems and stability in systems, which sounds like a pretty interesting contradiction in terms. But I think that uh, in many systems, like the rock, for example, the, the Chaos is what makes a, a certain kind of, uh, for a certain kind of statistical behavior in the system. Uh, and it's from s thinking about the statistics in the right way, using things like the law of large numbers, we can see how trends will emerge. Just think of tossing a coin many, many times. Each individual toss is really hard to predict because the outcome of the coin toss depends somewhat sensitively on the initial conditions. But one thing that's really easy to predict is that in the long run, you'll get about one half heads. So the chaos coexists with, and I think helps to explain the stability. Hmm. So they're not in tension. Ultimately but, not. But you brought up the word fractal, which hasn't occurred <laughs> other than implicitly in the conversation. But I think one of the, um, one of the challenges in, in understanding complex systems is the ubiquity of um, fractal-like behavior, some kind of self-similarity that seems to occur in many of these systems and um, in, in systems that are quite disparate. And I think that's, uh, you know, in, in, in individual cases, one might be able to understand them, understand its origins. But uh, to see why it should be so generic, I think, is just one of, again, one of those looming questions. If there is some explanation, generic one, it is to do with some generic optimization kind of phenomenon that's going on. Uh, but I think that is a major, it's a major challenge. Yeah, ju just one sentence to, about fractal, which is just as a metaphor, fractal is an interesting concept because they suggest how much one can do with so little. Yes. Because you write three lines of code and then you can marvel at these amazing <laughs> yes. pictures and you wonder how is that even possible. And, so just as a metaphor, I'm not saying that the cell is a fractal. I'm just saying as a metaphor, the fact that you've got this DNA string that's very short. We think it's long, but it's not. It's extremely short. And it does so much. That has a flavor with fractals. Finally, in thinking about designing a city, is it possible to design complexity? I said personally, I find it very hard not to design complexity. <laughs> it seems like, a it seems like designing complexity the is the problem. Exactly, <laughs> that's what I see as the issue. I, I don't know. But, you can but, it, but I think what I think, uh, I presume what's behind this is, is what was all, also has come up before. You know, you look across the city, for example, and everything is Euclidean, roughly speaking. I mean, all the geometry is straight lines and squares and rectangles and so on. And, um, you know, one of the marvels of, um, this, is, this is like a tautology, but one of the marvels of biology and of the world out there is its kind of organic kind of nature. It's curvaceous and, and buried in there is also this fractal behavior. And, and somehow that is a manifestation of its complexity. And, um, you know, one of the things we've been, we're very bad, in fact, we don't do, we do not, in, I, I'm, I'm reading into this question, we do not design organically. 
we designed, we, we've, our brains somehow have uh, found Euclidean geometry to be something that we're much more comfortable with. And, uh, and just one thinking of cities, you know, I don't know if you know, there's, there's this famous um, British architect, uh, Norman Foster, who's designed all kinds of things in the United States as well as uh, in, in the United Kingdom. But he was asked to design a city in um, the Arab Emirates, a modern city in the Arab Emirates. There was going to be a green city. This is completely loony, by the way. This is a place where the temperature is 115 every day. Anyway, beside the point, uh, what did he design? The shape of the city is an exact square, the complete antithesis of every evolved city on this planet. Um, so, you know, obviously this is an issue for architects and urban planners and so on that, uh, you know, when they have, when they're allowed to design de novo, uh, they resort back to, you know, being, um, you know, classic engineers. I wonder if, one thing that's going on here is that when something is built from the outside by engineers, it's a lot more efficient and cheaper to build it with squares and triangles and so on. But when it builds itself, like a, a body, uh, then that's no longer true. And so we get the, the curves and the folds and so on that we see in, in organic things. We are things. unbelievably efficient. I mean, look, you <laughs> sitting here, everybody sitting here, you You're know how much- You're the person who's ever said that to You're... me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, operate, well. we operate at 100 watts. We're one of these bloody light bulbs. You know, 2,000 food calories a day is, is less than 100 watts. The efficiency of that is extraordinary. <laughs> And look how <laughs> ridiculous these things are. <laughs> and we'll end there. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Jennifer Costley. It presented a conversation called Complexity, a Science of the Future, held at the Academy on Monday, May 9th, 2016. The moderator was Dr. George Musser of Scientific American Magazine, and the panelists were Dr. Bernard Chazelle of Princeton University, Dr. Marcelo Gleiser of Dartmouth College, Dr. Michael Strevens of New York University, and Dr. Jeffrey West of the Santa Fe Institute. To find out more about the Physics of Everything series, visit www.nyas.org slash physicsofeverything. Both this podcast and the event it presented were made possible with the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYASciences on Twitter or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.